Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Come on, show me the magic. Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies. What a scene of your Hollywood song. Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Lucker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. This week that film is the Linda McCartney story, a made-for-TV film broadcast on CBS in 2000. Based on the biography written by close friend Danny Fields, this biopic stars Elizabeth Mitchell as Linda and sees Gary Bakewell reprise his looky-likey role of Paul six years after playing him in Backbeat. But does this dramatisation of Linda's life and career do her justice? Does it do enough to portray her artistic contributions as a member of Wings? What about her vegetarianism? Her animal rights activism, her role in the film Give My Regards to Broad Street. And how soon will it be before we discuss that John Lennon rock-throwing scene? Let's find out. But going back to Linda, first of all, do you think the film is a fair portrayal of her life and her contributions to the work that she did? Uh, No, is the short answer. Um, I think uh, while it is uh, respectful about Linda... As any sort of CBS made-for-TV movie is probably always going to do, it it sort of glosses over her achievements. I think it's probably guilty of front-loading her relationship with Paul a bit too much. You can understand that creative decision. To be honest, it's probably what most people watching it want to see. Mm. Uh, But in, in doing so, it probably downplays her own personal achievements, I would say. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because I think that when you knowing what we know about her career and her relationship to Paul when when she married Paul and actually as depicted in the film she received a lot of criticism 
for being a member of Wings, mm. uh, and obviously was you know hugely unpopular for marrying Paul in the first place. And I think by the time she died, she was kind of almost saintly. <laughs> She's almost yeah. almost Diana like in her <laughs> in her yeah. in, in in terms of public opinion. Yeah. yeah. So she really uh, rode that that course. Uh, I think in terms of having to win people around to her and how she did that i think was through her own achievements Mm. right so especially in her later life it would have been around her vegetarianism animal rights activism uh and yeah and and the figure she became in that respect and i think that the film probably for, for a film that is called the linda mccartney story you're right it's kind of interested in the mccartney part of that title Mm. and not actually showing us why she would have deserved the credit that i think she actually got in real life yeah i I think it's probably fair to say that if we'd watched this in 2000 we would have been perfectly satisfied with it Mm. well i mean we well i mean we wouldn't have been perfectly satisfied with it because it isn't a very good film but (laughs) uh, but but in terms of uh, how we felt about it, it, it representing enough of her we probably would have been fine with that i think these days maybe we you know quite rightly feel feel a bit differently about things like this and uh, and the idea of uh, framing a woman's life around her relationship to a man is is sort of uh, more problematic than it was uh, 23 years ago but what a man yeah yeah <laughs> he did he did some good stuff he's, he's still doing good stuff <laughs> yeah, to be fair yeah. to him interestingly though i think the film isn't actually interested in I'm going to use one of those words that I never get a, a chance to use in real life, but Ooh. it feels appropriate here. Now, I don't think the film is interested in being a hagiography. You say that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Just... <laughs> but, you know, in in the sense that I, I don't think it is trying to portray saintly Linda. No. Um, which is a good thing. Mm. But there are times where I feel like she... It, it probably does her a little bit of a disservice. Yeah, you know, we we'll, we we might be in danger of jumping around a lot. I mean, there's a lot to unpick here with this film, right? Well, but... The film jumps around a lot, so I think it's probably <laughs> fair. <you know? laughs> That's true. Um, oh god, I immediately want to talk about that now. There is so much to talk about in this film. <laughs> what I was going to say, what I was going to say was, um, there are parts in the film where she is depicted as not having a clue about how to play piano mm. um, or you know or keyboards when she agrees to join Paul on stage as a member of Wings. Yeah. But at that time, she will have already contributed to a lot of the the songs that were released on Ram, for example. Mm, yeah. And it, it doesn't that doesn't quite gel. But so it, so it kind of feels like, well, if the film has made that creative choice to present her in that way, is that okay? Because you're kind of showing her as being a little bit inept. Yeah, in and, and almost sort of lucky to be there in yes. a way. Yes. Yeah. So certainly the way they uh, portray the beginning of her career in photography is that she had the opportunity. She was working for Town and Country magazine. Uh, it is no, uh, no. it's City and Village magazine in the film. Right. But in real life, it was Town and Country right, magazine. That, yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that 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 uh, creative choice to swap those out took all of two seconds, I imagine, for the, uh, <laughs> the writer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so she gets the opportunity to go along and photograph the Rolling Stones, or or rather the, the magazine gets an invitation to go to a Rolling Stones album launch on a boat, 
and um, she and her friend go and she says, you have to bring me with you as your photographer. So there's no hint in that that she's particularly done any photography before. Mm. And and the idea is that she then goes along just to get into this party. It pretends to be a photographer and then takes pictures and finds she's good at it. So in reality, while it's true that that photo session was kind of her big break, or at least the thing that got her first in into being recognized as a person who took pictures of pop stars in the 60s and getting a good reputation for that uh, she was already a, a photographer uh, like quite quite a junior photographer and quite a novice one it's fair to say but mm-hmm. it, it but it, the the film makes that distinction i think and it's quite an it's quite an important one the idea that because it kind of suggests that she just kind of fell into it through chance yeah I and, I, and i think that because i think quite often about when we uh covered wingspan in an earlier episode that was a real eye-opener for me in terms of her being viewed as an artist, yeah. as, as a musical artist yeah. uh, as part of Wings. But also, I think that film does a really good job of showing how iconic she was in terms of style and just really suiting that scene. Yeah. And I think you're right, like the way that this film depicts her as kind of stumbling into that role it implies that she's kind of unsuited to it. Yeah, but it also then doesn't give her credit for being uh, an artist in terms of her photographic work. Yeah, because that you know she she's recognised as being you know, one of the great pop culture photographers that we've ever had. Yeah, yeah, um, and it does kind of imply that well, I mean, she was just there and she had a camera, you know, as yeah, opposed to her yeah. having an actual eye for for what makes a good picture yeah and yeah and they do the same with the music part of it so you know as, as you say again they they sort of um they make out that when they started wings uh she says well i can't i can't play an instrument and paul's like oh it's okay i'll teach you and and in, you know it's, it's true that she was not an accomplished musician but she was certainly a, a bit more accomplished than they say um it's funny actually because it occurred to me that, that they they missed a trick a little bit that actually i i don't know but i can imagine that one of the things that the two of them might have liked about each other in in terms of um, their position as artists in their own right is that Linda never had any formal training in photography and actually she kind of said I think you know I was I was sort of too too lazy to do that and actually I just found like just sort of picking up the camera and mucking about with it and developing my own style was what I preferred and that is completely what Paul says Mm -hmm. about him himself as a musician and you know he's you can tell he's like quite proud of himself for not having formal training and being as good as he is. Yeah. And you can imagine that that would have appealed to each of them about the other uh, as, as an artist. And it doesn't really, it, it could have sort of made mention of that or implied that in some way. And it didn't, it just kind of showed her as being um, quite naive and um, stumbling into things and him being very accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what's uh, also interesting about that is uh, th- there's one part, that the film does that I actually thought was really, really good. It was a good thing to call out. And you probably won't hear me saying that a lot this this episode. <laughs> there's a lot to pick up on. But I always think of like Linda joining Wings was a way for Paul to keep his family close while he knew he had to continue it in his career as a musician yeah. and as a touring musician. But what uh, when the film shows Paul proposing this as an idea to Linda... What he says is, is I I miss being up on stage with my best friends. 
mm. and you are now my best friend. So mm. that makes sense to him. And yeah. that was actually quite a nice way, which I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that or I hadn't heard that being positioned in that way before, but that totally makes sense as yeah. Paul being up on stage, not with other session musicians, but actually he wants to be there with someone as close to him as the other three Beatles were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it makes me think, actually. Like, I wonder how... Like, Paul has now had the same touring band for a good 20 years or so. Mm. Uh, like, all those guys in the band have been there for that long. And I, d- I couldn't say with any authority... I- I'm not sure how, how much they're mates. Um, mm. I'm-, I'm sure they get on great, but I don't know whether they hang out other than working together. Maybe, maybe they do, I'm not sure. But yeah, I think with Wings... Like, Wings was... Other than... So, Denny Lane he knew from like the moody blues and they had sort of toured toured together in the 60s and stuff mm. so denny um, lane who by the way is completely absent from this film yes which no, is a bit no you're right actually yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a little bit like an, a, a bit of an omission I, yeah I that's think. true so it's so like while uh, wings are depicted yeah so and you see wings playing so i suppose there must be someone playing denny lane there's a denny yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but but certainly they don't he doesn't speak uh no you're right it hadn't occurred to me yeah i think uh, he well like most of wings were kind of session musicians in a way or certainly he treated them like session musicians yeah. i think but yeah it is interesting you're right the idea that he wanted someone who was sort of emotionally close to yeah uh up there with him as well because that was what he was used to you know and he sort of it had come from just being in a band with his mates for ages and, and maybe didn't want to let go of that you know um i think uh now, now that we've covered like that one very specific part of the film, which is by no means the you know a, a big part of it, I feel like I'm going to do now what you suggested earlier, which is jump around like the film does itself. Sure, um, the film jumps around a lot. It does doesn't it? And it really does. And you know what really annoyed me about that <laughs> is <laughs> right. <Go> on. <laughs> is there was the... normally what happens in a film like this is so so there's a really interesting way that the uh, the film. St- starts and implies that there's going to be a kind of framing device to the whole plot Mm. right which is the film starts with linda sharing an exhibition of her um, photographs and a lady comes up to her and says oh what it was like what was it like back then you know and and she basically says oh no i didn't know paul then and it does a flashback yeah and and her voice carries on sort of a, a narration yeah. over the top of that. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of get the impression it's her telling this whole story. Yeah. yeah. But it completely abandons that yeah. immediately. And what we get, I mean, and, and also it makes sense to you because she's not going to then be able to finish that story. As we... No, but I, I, I really liked the idea that sort of like like 40 minutes later, she's like, well, and then, of course, in 1978, we did it, and the lady's just there like, I, I, oh, God, I've got it. Uh, like, I, I, I'm just going to get a canopy, actually. I'll be, I'll be right back, though. This is great. I really want to hear the, the rest of this. Yeah, exactly. But what it does instead is um, it jumps around yeah. um, between Linda receiving a receiving her initial and later cancer diagnosis mm. um, with her starting her career as a photographer, meeting Paul and, you know, them starting a relationship and getting married, etc. But what annoys me is that what normally happens with a film like this, there is a reason why scenes connect to each other. So there will be like a scene in the... Uh, in in the more present day era of her being, you know, as this film depicts, like her perhaps being uh, with the doctor or consultant and being told a diagnosis. And there'll be something about that scene that then sparks a memory that takes her back to 
you know that's how these films tend to go mm. and there's none of that here there was literally a, a part in the, in the in the middle of the film that lasts about five minutes where you have her in the studio in abbey road with the beatles and there's tension in the band mm. it cuts to linda receiving a cancer diagnosis from a doctor and then it immediately cuts back to the studio again a few weeks later and yeah. everyone being annoyed because john hasn't turned up yeah and it's a bit like well, like why have you made that jump and then you jump back again there's yeah. no like con- there's no connective tissue between those scenes playing out it just mm. feels like the film wants to be able to do, tell both stories concurrently without really trying to do it in a sophisticated way yeah, it's yeah, it's sort of half a framing device, isn't it? So like the bit, the bits from so this this exhibition that they're at when she's doing the narration is in the mid nineties, so uh, maybe just before she gets a cancer diagnosis, or perhaps mm. post when she's had the diagnosis, but she's still like physically quite well. Yeah, I think, but but certainly, it, so it's used as the way to provide the narration for her earlier life, but then there's no framing device for her later life no. so like so i suppose what you, you could do structurally there is do the whole earlier life thing lead you up to 1995 or whenever it is and then go through the sort of later life like, and death as in chronologically that. at that point yeah, yeah. I, I suppose so yeah yeah structurally it's quite sort of unsound in general suppose, yeah. <laughs> yes Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk positively for a moment. The film has a bad reputation. Yeah. However, I do think that Elizabeth Mitchell as Linda is actually quite brilliant. Yeah. And it's, I think it's rare that a film like this has someone that talented in this role. Like these kind of made for TV movies that are kind of made very cheaply mm. and are kind of made to capitalize on public interest in like a celebrity lifestyle yeah you know like you, you get it now even when they were like you know they'll i think recently there was like a, a harry and megan style film that was made or um or wills and kate or when they do things like the cast of saved by the bell well it was really like on set you know mm. that kind of thing so they're always made really cheaply and they're always starring no-name actors that you never see, hear or see again but yeah. elizabeth mitchell is obviously someone who in the last 15 years or so has has become someone who is very well-known face in TV in particular uh, and in some films. 
She wasn't someone I was familiar with before. But so I looked at. So she was. She was in Lost. Is that yeah, right? I think yeah. she was. I think she probably would have first come on most people's radar uh, in Lost. Yeah. Um, since then, she she's been in quite a lot of sort of high profile, like glossy, big budget American TV shows. Yeah. Um, she is also uh, the. <laughs> she also plays Mrs. Claus in the Tim Allen Santa Claus movies. Right. So if you are like I am, with kids at a certain age that where you have to watch those kinds of movies every single year, yeah. you'll be very familiar with her face. Right. Okay. Um, but but she has a you know it's, it's, she has a, lots of like big name um, titles to mm. her credit, and I think that that's it's almost luck in a way that the film was able to get her and cast her as Linda before her obvious talents led to a much bigger career because she's actually very very good in this. She's very personable. She you, you can tell that she's bringing something to the film that most of the other actors aren't able to. So there, there are a few examples that that really stood out to me. There's, there's a bit. It's a, it's a bad line of dialogue, where she is reading criticism of her as a member of Wings, mm. and she says something like, um, "Even Mick Jagger said something bad about her." And Paul says, "Well, screw Jagger," and she says, "I already did," <laughs> um, which is terrible. Like on paper, yeah. that's terrible. Yeah, but she does do this. Immediately after given the line, she makes a face as if to say, "Oh, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to have said that to Paul." You know, like it's almost like she's like embarrassed or yes, I know. Like, yeah, and it, yeah. there were just those sort of small touches that like, brings a little bit of charm and personality to to her portrayal of her, which is just makes it a little bit more of a nuanced performance than uh, I think most people will be bringing to a film like this. Yeah, I think um, I got the impression. That, I mean, Gary Bakewell being. You know, listen, uh, not uh, not not sort of a massive name actor, but someone who has played Paul McCartney in a film that was in Backbeat that was, you know, uh, very well received. It, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic, I think that film's pretty well known. Mm. So I think it's f- fair to say that people uh, would look and, th- you know, and think, even though the character of Paul was not a huge one in Backbeat, would think, oh, that's the guy who played him in Backbeat. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the two leads, that's kind of where where the budget has gone i think probably mm. you know a lot of it and you know i think i think it's very interesting to think about how these films are, are budgeted in a funny way because obviously you know this is a cbs tv movie no one expects them to be brilliant uh, that that is not the point of them and and which is why like you know I, I think you and i will like quite studiously you know spend, spend the next half an hour or whatever um, not just sitting here slagging off this film because what's the point? Because yes. no, yeah, no, yeah. nobody expects it to be great. To 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 point out the fact that it's not that great over and over again would be to miss the point. Excuse me, I just need to cross a few things off my notes. <laughs> <laughs> but sure, carry on. <laughs> but yeah, I think they're intended to kind of achieve a certain aim, uh, and they are kind of intended to tug at the heartstrings. And there are bits in this film, the ending in particular, uh, the way they show her death in particular, that uh, did kind of tug at my heartstrings. Yeah. It achieved what it was supposed to do. You know, it made I, I found it like quite moving in a way. <laughs> Caveat of that was saying in a way, of course. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but <laughs> immediately it was like it's damning with faint praise. Right, right, right. But but no, genuinely, I mean, they, they are intended to kind of uh, uh, you know sort of make you go all gooey, uh, and and they're quite good at doing that. And the point is that they can do that with quite a small budget, and you can see where the budget has been 
spent. So there's a bit been spent here on a little bit of period detail, mm. uh, costumes and so forth. The way that they have done the costumes is, is pretty accurate. So there are things like the Sergeant Pepper launch at Brian Epstein's house, where she and Paul met for the second time, where she is taking the pictures of them, where they're holding up the album cover and John is sort of doing the thumbs up and laughing and things. Um, the outfits that they're wearing in that are all pretty accurate. And they have obviously spent some time looking at pictures uh, in order to create the, recreate the scenes in which they were taken. So it, they've given someone some money to do some proper research, you know, mm. or, or at least uh, more research than they needed to, it's fair to I, say. I was actually mm. quite taken with when the film starts and you've got Linda presenting an exhibition of her work, how many of those photos were photos that I recognised as, you know, famous pictures of the Beatles, as taken by Linda, mm. that have been recreated really faithfully, like surprisingly faithfully, and not in a way that I don't think where they've badly photoshopped Gary Bakewell's face onto mm. a picture of Paul, like, as in yeah. I feel like they've gone out of their way to properly recreate them in terms of clothing and setting and yeah. stuff. And, I was, and there's a, quite a lot of them, and quite a lot that I think that in the year 2000, when this film was broadcast, to most people who weren't Beatles nerds, wouldn't notice. No. So no, so actually, it's a lot of effort into yeah. an area that they, there's, a re, there's an argument to say they might not have needed to have done that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was quite impressed, actually. But and I, and I think that's true through most of the film. I think you can really tell that the film is really trying to faithfully stick to depicting actual events exactly as, and as closely resembling how it happened in real life as possible yeah 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 and i i like the fact that you know with things like outfits so you know that that scene in which the the brick is thrown which we will come to when paul comes out of his house he is dressed in essentially like the same suit that he is wearing on the abbey road cover yes. but with with a beard uh, so it's like you know it's pretty 1969 accurate and they've kind of uh, merged together two of his looks but i like the idea that like it in, in my mind that like Paul McCartney spent the first half of 1969 wearing like a yellow polo neck jumper, uh, in, which, <laughs> yeah. in which which he wore when writing Get Back, and then the second half of 1969 wearing that suit and bare feet. <laughs> and that's it. Like, and bare feet. Like, like those, those 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 were his clothes that year. You know, but I like the idea that the film has kind of run with that. Idea. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, can we go back to um, Gary Bakewell quickly as well? Because. Yeah. Um, I am interested to know what you thought of his performance here because I think as much as you're right, I think most people will be like, oh, it's that guy that we recognised from playing Paul before in Backbeat. Mm. Um, because he had a smaller role in Backbeat, he's shouldering a lot more of the movie here. Mm. And, and and you do have to wonder how much of his casting as Paul is just down to him being a very good likeness. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you first before I give my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what did you think of him as an actor and carrying a big chunk of this movie? Oh, I th- I thought he did pretty well in general. Like I uh, like you reminded me earlier before we started talking that he is Scottish because I because uh, I I think I probably knew that before but had forgotten. But I was watching this and thinking, oh, this they've got an actual Liverpudlian in. But no, he's uh, from Glasgow, I think you said. Yes, right? that's right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it, uh, he's doing a brilliant Scouse accent. He's not particularly doing a, a Paul McCartney impersonation. Mm. But I mean, we spoke before, one of the interesting things when we talked about the hours and times, 
was the, those two actors, Ian Hart and, and David Angus, talking about deliberately not doing a sort of bang on impersonation to leave room for character. Mm. And so th- there's no particular need for him to do an impersonation. So certainly uh, Aidan Quinn in Two of Us uh, is doing much more of a Roman McCartney impersonation than Gary Bakewell is. Oh, bloody, oh, bloody. I hate your stinking song. Pure rubbish. Oh, right. Is that your opinion, John? Or hers? I can speak for myself. Oh, is that so? I hadn't noticed. The vocal's done yet. Yeah, come on. Come on. Playback, please. From the top. Got to use the loo. I think he gets across at times uh, the sort of bits of ego that Paul had. I think the interplay between the two of them, particularly when they're sort of falling in love, is quite well done. I think it's maybe a bit thinly drawn, but I do mm-hmm. like how they're drawing in aspects, uh, little details that uh, that I've heard of before, the whole thing where they go for a drive and Linda says, let's get lost and Paul, and that's completely against Paul's instincts because he likes to be in control of things. And she says, "No, let's just get lost. Turn, turn off here, then we'll turn off here, then we won't know where we are." You know, yeah. but like the idea of deliberately getting lost and and the freeing nature of that, which really appealed to him. Uh, he talked about it later, you know. Uh, and I think uh, like Gary Bakewell plays those bits uh, really quite well. I I, I agree. I I thought I, I think you would be forgiven for thinking that in a film like this, Gary Bakewell has been cast due to his likeness alone. Yeah. But he carries a lot of scenes very, very well. Yeah. And I actually, I, I was probably most struck by it during there. There were a few moments, uh, particularly at the end with Linda's death, which are are actually really touching. Mm. And I think he plays those very well. There's also a scene where he breaks down when when he hears of John's death, mm. and and it's it's a real sort of like moment of anguish uh, for him. And I think that's quite a difficult thing to pull off as an actor. Yeah. When you're predominantly cast because of how closely you resemble the person you're playing yeah um so i thought that was good my only sort of slight criticism and it's not really criticism and i'll tell you why is i don't feel like paul and linda i don't think gary babel and and elizabeth mitchell had a much chemistry between them uh for two people that uh are in love um and and have such a strong connection Mm. But why I don't think it's necessarily that much of a criticism is I don't really think of Paul as having much chemistry in that way anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like in terms of like sexual chemistry. Yeah. Like, I, you know, you don't really think of Paul in those terms. So I kind of, you know, it, I didn't notice it so much. I, I, I guess I'm still not convinced that the film does a brilliant job of showing us that the two immediately had a very deep bond. Mm. that then led to a 30-year relationship. I think the film is trying to tell us that that's what happened. Yeah. But we don't necessarily see that or or, or feel it. Yeah, it's to, yeah, it's sort of telling rather than showing yeah. those aspects. Yeah, I do know what you mean. I think it is that actually one of the interesting things about the relationship and certainly the way it started is that he, he, he was sort of quite ready to become... Uh, quite domestic, quite quickly. I think mm-hmm. he, he. I think he'd sort of done a lot, a lot of his. You know, he he'd spent the last few years partying pretty hard, and certainly they didn't stop partying after they got together. But I think he quite liked the idea of a uh, home and a wife and a family, and you know, and and a meal on the table. You know, there's a, a bit of sort of old school sixties mm-hmm. chauvinism in that to some degree. But I think also 
uh, I, th I think it, also it was quite inclusive. He was ready to have someone to open up to and share his life with. And so I suppose because it's kind of showing that that part of their relationship, we don't get a lot of the, oh, like these two were like really, really sort of passionately attracted to each yes. other. It's, it's yeah, maybe yeah. that that sort of the showing the sort of more domestic side, uh, which is a big part of their relationship, maybe uh, downplays that chemistry a bit. Yeah, I, I completely see. I mean, because we, we do think of Paul and Linda as as being comfortable with each other, yeah. like in the, in the way that like deep rooted long term relationships often are. Yeah, uh, and, and I think what comes with that is this view of them as being wholesome. Yeah, in a way, and I think that yeah, you're right. Like it's difficult to portray wholesome next to sexy yeah you know? <laughs> <laughs> although we should call out when the film starts to venture into erotic territory earlier on when mm. we see a uh, sexual dalliance between linda and jim Morrison the doors yeah and suddenly you have this scene of the two of them getting it on uh, where the camera's sort of moving behind like soft furnishings mm. and there's there's a lot more skin on show uh, and it's all very slowed down with cheesy sax music playing and, yeah, yeah, yeah and it's like is this this feels like we're in late night channel five territory suddenly right exactly. only for like 20 seconds and then it immediately remembers that this is telling the story of a, a woman who gets cancer and yeah and yeah and, and, dies. And, and died two years ago yes exactly yeah <laughs> yeah it's very very odd choice to, to sort of go down that road as far as it did yeah, it does seem that way. But it, yeah, I mean, again, it sort of makes me think of like how uh, sort of CBS TV movies are put together, uh, presumably ever so slightly by committee, where there is someone saying, OK, people like the Beatles, right? Let's get Beatles stuff in. People like sex, right? Let's kind of uh, suggest there's a bit of sex going on, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I, it, it must be that to some degree. It must be yeah, uh, just so, sort of trying to cram in as much as you can. Because this is like a sort of... Um, Friday night movie or a Sunday night movie or whatever, right? You know, so yeah, it's yeah, like you're, you're going for a broad audience. And you're trying to get people's attention, trying to get them to stay with the the film because it's a scene that happens early on. Yeah, bear in mind, like even saying the fact that she slept with Jim Morrison would be surprised to most people. Yes. I, I, to, to be honest, I actually I had to go back and look it up in a biography to verify that it was true because I didn't remember that was true. Yeah, and it, it's not particularly uh, played upon in biographies. I don't think that she. Slept with Mick Jagger, I think, and uh, Warren Beatty as well, I think. Oh. Um, and I mean, Warren Beatty slept with everyone, you know. Yeah. So, like, you know, like he, he probably probably slept with you back then, as opposed know. to completely reserved Mick Jagger. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, famously at home with with his slippers on in nineteen sixty four. Yeah, but I suppose that the film is probably there's a bit of shock value in there or yeah. like, as far as the film is concerned to its audience that is a reveal right mm. people don't know that linda mccartney slept with jim morrison so you need i suppose you need to make a bit of it you know yeah yeah you need to make a scene out of it i mean to be honest with you, i i thought that the the doors section of the film um with jim morrison was uh handled relatively well yeah. apart from the you know uh weird cheesy eroticism yeah the mick jagger section made me cringe a bit because uh the actor playing Mick Jagger clearly is Canadian because the whole film was shot in Vancouver yeah really bad accent but also that like she's taking photos of him and he says to her 
have you got what you want? Is that all you need? And it's just like, <laughs> it, it, do in these films, is it just typical to portray musicians as only ever speaking in their own lyrics? You know, it's just, it's, it's very, it just, it's, I find it really cringy. And there's a lot of that throughout the film, actually, isn't there? There's, yeah. there's Paul explicitly saying that, um, telling Linda all about his mum and saying, oh, when I was young, she used to say to me, son, let it be, let it be. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a temptation, I think, as a writer to sort of make nodding winks to the audience. Yeah. But it yeah. just always jumps out as being completely contrived. Yeah. Again, I think for a CBS TV movie, yeah, might be quite satisfying to the audience. Like, oh, yeah. let it be. That's one of his favorite, uh, his famous songs. I know that one. You know, yeah, yeah. Again, that is almost kind of lowest common denominator stuff. It's not intended to be a criticism. I think it's, it is doing what these films are supposed to do. Uh, and things like that is sort of pleasing an audience who does who is generally aware that this is about the Beatles and they quite like the Beatles. They don't know a lot about the Beatles mm. and they kind of generally know who Linda McCartney is. They're aware that she sort of made some sausages and stuff. Um, <laughs> and, and and actually, it is probably pleasing that audience quite well. It doesn't mean that that audience is going to think this was a really brilliant film. It just means mm. that they will, have, they will have been entertained by it for an hour and a half, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think we're in danger a little bit of forgiving the film a lot on the basis that well what do you expect as a cbs tv that's made for a certain audience yes whereas the other argument for that is cbs production should be up in the game <laughs> like maybe challenge their view every now and again you know yeah, yeah, um, yeah. but yeah. i mean I, I get the point and and you're right like we should be talking about it i guess we should about any film in terms of how it meets our expectations um, yeah, yeah. I think I think films should be, art in general should be judged on on the terms of what it was trying to achieve. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fine. <laughs> well, well, okay, then. Um, seeing as you love the film so much, <laughs> seeing as it's your favourite film, um, John Lennon throwing a rock through the window. Yes. <laughs> Good, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Justify that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. Um, while, uh, like, you know, we've been quite generous about uh, Gary Bakewell and Elizabeth Mitchell's performances. Um, I think uh, the actors playing the other three Beatles, accents are not fantastic. The delivery of dialogue is not fantastic. Uh, nothing about their performances is fantastic. Um, Personally, I think that the film set out what it was trying to achieve. And it's perfectly <laughs> fine for the audience. But carry on. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I've, uh, I've, I've painted myself into a corner here. Yeah. This is the last episode of the podcast because how can we go on? I know we can't go any further. Can we? Um, every episode from now on will just me be saying, "Well, I think it was fine based on what it was trying to achieve." So, uh, so there, there is a reason that anyone who li- ever listened to Sean Keaveney's uh, show on BBC uh, Six Music, Radio Six Music. Uh, will be aware that when, uh, whenever he played a, a Paul McCartney or Beatles McCartney track, it would immediately be followed by McCartney. Who the hell do you think you are? And um, that is from this film. So this is based on John certainly climbed over the wall of Cavendish Avenue when Paul hadn't turned up to a session because he was annoyed with him. Whether he actually threw a brick through his window, I'm not sure. But there's a scene before this where John goes round to the house and smashes a framed picture that uh, that John had drawn or painted and given to Paul. That's true. So, you know, there are bits of this that are based on uh, real events. 
But yeah, there, there is um like Sean Keaveney used that clip because the thing itself is funny. You you watch it and um, for a start, he, he he vaults over this gate or he sort of and, and, but he sort of tries to vault over the gates and you can see that the actor is kind of struggling a little bit to actually pull himself over it. I, I think this it. is it, isn't it? Because I think this it's the, the scene itself as written is kind of already a bit silly, mm. but it's very clumsily performed because <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah like he he hitches himself up on the gate puts his uh foot up on the gate as if he's about to vault it completely yeah. and then immediately struggles and has to sort of get down a bit more tenderly <laughs> yeah <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah and then he sort of looks around for a brick he runs in a sort of oddly furtive uh, sort of co- <laughs> comic way looks around for a, br- a stone or a brick which is like handily just in the uh, just next to the path picks it up lobs it uh through the front door window shouts what he shouts and then just immediately just sort of just sort of settles down yeah. you know it's a, so it's not like he doesn't sort of it does the same thing in the scene where he smashes the picture actually is that he he doesn't convince you that he's genuinely enraged because he just kind of like uh, stops and deflates a little bit um that's right and, uh, and we do actually see him walk away and it's a it's a calm walk away yeah right yeah. it's presumably to awkwardly climb back over the gate again yeah yeah you're right i can't justify that scene artistically <laughs> <laughs> one all um one of the things i thought that was interesting actually about when we see john arrive and smash a, a picture because paul hasn't turned up for a studio that day mm-hmm is that the scene immediately before that is showing John not turning up to the studio and the band getting annoyed because they're wasting their time. Yeah. Uh, so the film is clearly making a choice to say, we've seen John do this, and now this is John's reaction to Paul doing it. How unfair is that? Yeah. Um, so it's very much, you know, as you would expect from a film with this title, it's very much showing, you know, this is a film that's on Paul's side yeah. in the whole Paul v. John debate. And that is very much apparent in other scenes as well, where we see earlier on in the studio, we see John and Yoko sort of being a bit like giggling, snidey school children <laughs> in the corner, yeah. clearly making insulting remarks about Paul. I think Yoko says, I thought your intro was much better than his mm. out loud. Yeah. Um, all designed to, to piss Paul off. Yeah, yeah. And then when they decide to leave to go to the toilet i.e. go and take some drugs mm. because John refuses to play another take of there's just this sort of sense of Yoko just sort of smirking on his arm a bit as if like she's she's winning mm. in some way and yeah. it's just a awfully offensive depiction of her yeah. in this scene where she's kind of manipulating this this horrible tension between the band in in a really hateful way for no reason. Yeah, it's, it's very starkly played as anti Yoko in, in yeah. a way that actually I suspect in two thousand would have felt quite uncomplicated because that's kind of what everyone thought of Yoko Ono at the same mm. at, at that time. And so yeah, n- now it looks particularly unpleasant and at odds. You know, it also the you know she she only has a few scenes. I think uh, later on you see. Uh, Paul and Linda going to the Dakota building uh, around Christmas time and surprising uh, John and Yoko, which is true. It happened in, happened in real life. Uh, I think they, they turned up and sort of um, pretended to be carol singers. And uh, it, it, this is sort of implied 
that this was like their last meeting. They, they've done a weird thing with the timeline uh, where basically the, the next scene after this is Paul getting arrested in Japan. And so like in, in real life, I think they last saw each other in person in 1976. Well, of course, we know this here because this was uh, <laughs> the two of us, which we've done an entire episode. Yeah, about. So, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, which also came out in 2000, by the by. And, and, this, um, and it came out in 2000. And, and that scene you're talking about where Paul and Linda turn up uh, at the door. It, it felt to me like we were stepping into that movie mm, briefly. Yeah, I, I guess because of a similar kind of production design look. Yeah. Um, but it just felt very, very familiar to me from that movie. It, for, for a brief moment, it felt like a little bit of a movie crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny that they were, you know, TV movies, you know, two of us is a VH1 movie, you know, they're, yeah. they're both doing TV movies about similar subject matter in the same year. Yeah. But yeah, the, so in, in that, like, there is a, a bit of dialogue in there which there is no narrative reason to be there where Yoko says, oh yeah, we love Tokyo. We always go to the same hotel and she names the hotel that John and she always went to in real life. And then when wings are turning up in Japan, when Paul gets busted for having marijuana in his suitcase, in real life, Paul and Linda were going to stay at the same hotel and which has led to completely unsubstantiated rumours that Yoko somehow phoned ahead used her contacts in Japan or something like that to get to plant the drugs or make sure his yeah. suitcase was searched, which is all rubbish, you know. So it doesn't quite, the film doesn't quite make the connection, but it does mention the hotel when there's no reason to whatsoever. Yeah, sure, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this is this is a very negative depiction of Yoko Ono. You could read that implication for, by the mention of the hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. earlier about Paul being shown as wanting to settle down with Linda and 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 that's obviously like a key focus of this film I think one of the things that the film does quite badly is showing both Paul and Linda's relationship to Heather yeah because what we see and, and this isn't intentional but it kind of implies that Linda is always happy to just at a moment's notice leave Heather her young, very young child, in order to go and spend some time partying with rock stars. Mm. And then later on, Paul, uh, once they've met and they've had a relationship and they're, they're, there is a moment where they're actually with Heather, uh, which doesn't happen often at all. And until that point, Paul does say, oh, I want to adopt her, just shortly before he suggests marriage to Linda. Yeah. And um, I don't really feel like you get much of a sense of his relationship to her at that point. You don't get a sense of him wanting to be a father to her yeah. or really any scenes at all of, of him clearly being good at, you know, looking after her or being a father figure to her. Yeah, true. And I, I, I guess, you know, we we always invoke Get Back, I think, as a reference point now, which is unfair for a film that was made in 2000. Yeah. But some of that stuff really comes across in in the film. Yeah. I think where you see them, you know, play together. I just felt it was a bit of a shame. It's kind of again, it's one of those things that the film tells us that he wants, but doesn't actually make the time to show us that yeah. he'd be good at it. Yeah, I want. I wonder if, like, to make a film like this, you might end up relying on the fact that people generally know who Paul McCartney is, and so maybe you kind of feel like you don't need to do that much characterization. Maybe mm. it's that you know. I suppose you could be forgiven for writing a film like this and not 
not bothering to draw his character in all that much depth. Yeah, and I think that the other part of that as well is I was actually interested to know a little bit more about why Linda was resistant to getting married to Mm. Paul. And again, it's something that sort of comes up and I guess she she does say that she was married before uh, and that's the reason why, but... I, I don't know. Like, are you are you aware of everything like that was true? That she was resistant to him at first, and he had to sort of convince her to, you know, let them get married. I don't know. It it does ring a bell, but I can't substantiate it. It's. Uh, I I mean, I suspect uh, certainly as far as the film's concerned, it's there for a bit of uh, conflict and resolution. Yeah. Um, just to show you know this uh, this whole. Uh, this whole love affair wasn't just you know, an easy thing. They had to overcome some obstacles. Uh, but then, you know, they have obstacles with, you know, the apple scruffs, you know, and things like that, you know. But, but I mean, I, I, it's a really good point. I, I think you're right. I think that's why that's there in the film. I, I think on the whole, I get the impression there weren't that many obstacles because the, yeah. the film, uh, uh, we, we, we actually end up talking about this quite a lot on these episodes, I think, where when a film has to inject sort of conflict or peril i feel like it does stand out a bit for example in fact it's uh, it made me laugh actually at the time when paul is upset and drinking a lot because they're following the breakup of the beatles and you do have this sense of oh paul is like now an alcoholic and he um, he and linda have a big argument and she storms out and rides a horse for a bit and then comes back and then he just says sorry and they're fine yep because they they have to sort of like overcome that really quickly. Yeah. The actual argument is is hilarious because it's basically him saying, "I don't think that I can write music without John." <laughs> and right. Linda's like, "Yeah, you can. You're really talented." And he's like, "No, I don't think I can." It's like, "No, you're really talented." It's like, <laughs> "Oh, shut up!" But like, it's yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like, are you really arguing over exactly how talented you are, Paul McCartney? <laughs> yeah, I think it kind of misses the point of him a bit as well because I, I mean. Uh, while it's true, like he was uh, sort of depressed uh, around that time after the breakup of the Beatles, I I don't think that self doubt about his ability as a songwriter is something he's ever particularly struggled with. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's quite comfortable about that. Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> uh, that's interesting as well, actually, because you never get this impression that Linda is ever never in any doubt about that. Yeah, she's taken with that quite quickly yeah. uh, again with one of my I'm going to start listing some of my favourite moments in the film now and great I'm, I'm saying these are good points about the film and I will show you the good points in the film by quoting what is obviously a bad part of the film <laughs> <laughs> like when Linda meets Paul at the Sergeant Pepper photo shoot mm. and asks him where did Sergeant Pepper come from and he says oh I just heard someone say salt and pepper and I thought oh Sergeant Pepper it's a bit of a pun you see it's a play on words. Yeah. And she just says, what a mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like of, of all the things they could have picked. Yeah. Because like, there are lots of things where you know, he could have said, oh, yeah, this is the thing that I came up with. And she could have like quite genuinely said, oh, what a mind. You know, just, but yeah. just to pick that. Because he says, you know, it's a bit of a pun. And it's like, I mean, it's not really a pun. It's not a pun it? at it's all. Like, no. It's it, Sergeant sounds a little bit like Sultan. <laughs> And that, and that, but that isn't how puns work. <laughs> <laughs> just key, so key cultural touchstone that's just reduced it. Well, it's, it's pun that doesn't work. You yeah. know, you know. <laughs> exactly. Should we get on to a, a another really obvious thing to talk about in the film? 
which is uh, the music. Yeah. And how music is used in the film. Because it's a, I, I would say it's a little bit haphazard. Yeah. I was confused a lot throughout the film as to why certain choices have been made about the music. Mm. So it starts with, do you know your opening credits? Um, it starts playing Gimme Some Loving. Yep. So immediately my thought, thought was, oh, this is obviously going to be a film that has no rights to any of the Beatles music. Yeah, Fine. Yeah. We'll, you know, yeah. uh, this is after all a CBS channel uh, program made for a certain audience and we shouldn't expect any more from it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but immediately after that, they start playing I Want to Hold Your Hand um, over footage, uh, actual real footage of Shea Sadium. Mm. And the the song there is performed by a tribute band called the Fab Four. Yeah. But it is actually, it's a Beatles song. Yeah. Uh, later on in the film, they play that exact same song again. Yeah. Uh, strangely, uh, later on, it's they play "Please Please Me." Yeah. Um, and they have some other. Uh, I think that there's "Kansas City" is one of the other songs later on when they're in Wings performing that that number. But yeah, it's it's a few odd choices there to not lean into Beatles music more. Yeah. If you can, or to just make different different choices about what those Beatles songs were that sort of better reflect how they're used in the film. Yeah. So I suppose, again, it's, it's part, partly where the budget has been spent. Mm. So, yeah, I, I want to hold your hand and please, please me, the only two Lennon McCartney songs used. And as you say, they're performed by a tribute band. Uh, the, the way they're used is other than the sort of brief use of I want to hold your hand with Shea Stadium footage, uh, in which it's not even really implying that they are playing I Want to Hold Your Hand in, in that concert. Later on, w- one of the songs is played while the two of them are sort of driving along in the car. It's the Let's Get Lost scene. And you're not quite sure whether they're saying this is being played over the radio or not. Yeah. It's the same with when Linda is in a taxi going to Paul's house in Cavendish Avenue for the first time. One of the songs is playing... And you're not sure if it's on the radio. In fact, I don't think it is on the radio because when she walks into the house, you still have it on. So it's. I think it starts on the radio and it and it transitions into being just music that's played for the rest of that scene. Right. Yeah. It's a rare example of a contiguous uh, tra- <laughs> transfer into non-contiguous. It's uh, it's really it's a... another one of those words yeah. that you you rarely get to use in real life in actual conversation. I mean, again, I, I use it most days. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, the, the the songs being used don't necessarily soundtrack the things that are happening so like these are scenes in sort of 68 69 and you know when i'm sure i want to hold your hand was being played on the radio still but as, as far as we the audience are concerned it doesn't really make you think oh this is the sound of 1969 yes you know and, yeah and in fact i mean you, you could have just taken like any 60s song from that era or as we've discussed before you know just general Mersey beat sounding music or just general sort of sitar music or whatever to yeah. say, oh, it's the late sixties now as, as most of these films do. So it's interesting that it, it that it bothers to use the Beatles music at all because it yeah. didn't need to. But, uh, but I think it's interesting that it bothers to use Beatles music at all that it, and it's that choice of songs because you'd expect in the Linda McCartney story for them to be songs that are, a bit more fitting, or at least were written when they'd met, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, whether or not they were about Linda or not. Or, uh, and I don't, I, you know, I guess realistically, I don't really know how this would work, but you maybe use that budget on 
some of the songs that Linda played on. Yeah. If they're going to be performed by a tribute band anyway, right? Yeah. You know, like it just—it's it, it, a strange, strange, strange choice to make to choose those two pre-Linda songs in a Beatles film if you're going to spend the budget at all. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I did find it interesting that um, cre- the credits at the end tell us that the band performing those songs uh, are called the Fab Four. I'm assuming they are the same Fab Four that. Uh, are actually quite a big deal, particularly in the US. Right. Um, so I think over here in the UK, we we think of Bootleg Beatles as being the definitive Beatles tribute act. Yeah. I think the Fab Four is probably the equivalent in the US. Right. And and reading up about them, actually, they're quite they're called upon quite a lot for sort of big projects, like official projects. So they were the stand-ins uh, for the footage that was used for the rock band um, game. Right. Um, they were also hired, although ultimately not used when it got cancelled for uh, what was going to be the Robert, Robert Zemeckis Yellow Submarine remake ah. to perform the songs as the Beatles. Wow. And they were going to be sort of, you know, used as those kind of um, animated stand-ins. For oh, those. Okay. So th- th- there's lots and lots of examples of how they are seen as like, if, if you need someone to act like the Beatles for a big thing, this is who you get. Yeah. Uh, again, I, th- I guess I don't know what that tells us about the budget for this film and, and how involved they were in recording those songs for this film or whether those were recordings that they already had that were yeah. then used. Yeah. don't know, but it's um, interesting. Uh, it's, it's not like in Backbeat where there was an entirely new band formed and, and a bit of an artistic or creative choice around what what how that music should be played. Right, and ha- how it sounded and, and, and like w- what the impression was they were giving across. So yes. it, was, it was sort of like 90s grunge. Uh, Super group, wasn't it? It, yeah. Right, yeah, who were play- who was able to sort of get across the sort of punkier aspects of their Hamburg sound, I guess. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Another strange choice is when uh, the big scene where they're arguing in the studio, what is uh, Abbey Road Studios? We know this because it says the word Abbey Road Studio <laughs> 2 on the wall, yeah. even though it was called EMI Studios at the time. They, uh, they're they having a big argument about who's going to manage them post-Brian Epstein. And Paul says, there's no way I'm having Bruce Grossman manage us. Yes. And I th- thought, not unreasonably, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> no. I never agreed to Bruce Ghostman as our manager. I don't trust him. The guy is just a... He got the stones over a million dollar advance at a Decker. We never got any advance. Yeah, he also got all the hot dog songs off him too, John. Look, why don't we have Lee and John Eastman handle their affairs? No one knows the music business better than they do. Press announcement already went out naming Grossman as our manager. Well, get it back. He's got problems with the US tax authorities. Just exactly what we don't need. Yoko and I want him. He's blunt. He's funny. He knows every one of our songs. And none of us are married to his sister. Because around the Alan Klein, uh, the time when Alan Klein ended up taking over in 1969, there were a couple of other people uh, just sort of on the scene, you know, sort of proposed as managers. And so I had to go and look up whether this was a guy I'd forgotten. But it's not. They are arguing about whether Alan Klein should manage them or not. But they're using the name Bruce Grossman and not Alan Klein. So maybe Alan Klein is just as potentially litigious as the publishers of Town and Country magazine. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can only be that, right? Or, or, yeah. or, or you know, I, I was trying to think, is there some connection between Alan Klein, who was still alive at the time in 2000, 
uh, between Alan Klein and and CBS, maybe, and they didn't want to offend him uh, because they are saying, or, or you know, Paul, the character in it, is saying that you know the the guy is a crook, he's got a bad name, and he's got um, problems with the U.S. tax authorities. We don't want to get involved with him, uh, and so it's true that the the character they're talking about, and, and the film is kind of on Paul's side in in the whole thing. So it's fair to say that this character of Bruce Grossman or Alan Klein, who you never see is not being talked about in a favourable light. But at the same time, it's perfectly well documented that these were conversations that they were having in real life. The film couldn't be accused realistically of of, of sort of libelling mm. Alan Klein. And so, but then there must be a reason why they've decided to use just a different character's name. The only thing that occurred to me as well about that was, because um, when I heard that name, I was like, it's really, not, not only is it strange that they have chosen to sub in a different name for Alan Klein but they chose the name Bruce Grossman <laughs> so yeah. um, I guess my first thought was they've chosen the name to deliberately tell the audience in a bit of a shorthand way that he is a bad person yeah. and we should be siding with Paul in in this argument right? Um, as it as it has seemed to want us to do throughout the film anyway Yeah. Um, I think the only thing that sort of punches that idea slightly is because I also think that the film has taken that name from albert grossman who was the who was bob dylan's manager at the same time as alan klein was managing the beatles and rolling stones so they've kind of amalgamated a um a sort of the name presumably from from him yeah as well but yeah there is a I, i did wonder whether or not that scene has the same impact if paul was actually saying the name alan klein there's no reason why it shouldn't, but like it, no. there's a extra sort of weight behind Bruce Grossman sounding like the kind of person you can't trust. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, that would be a very strange creative choice. Yeah. To have made. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, and certainly I'd you know I'm not, I'm not a person who thinks that Beatles biopics need to be like a hundred percent faithful uh, to everything that happened because I think actually just if you're making a narrative film, it kind of misses the point if you're all you're going to do is. Uh, is be one hundred percent accurate as to like these the events that happened. Um, it, it doesn't leave any room for nuance or storytelling, arguably. Um, but yeah, just uh, changing the name of a character, you know, because I suppose you know if you wanted to get that across, you know, just just call him like Ron Businessman or or like <laughs> yeah, Mike exactly. Bastard or something, you know. <laughs> So as we've mentioned before, um, you know the, the film does actually get quite touching towards the end. For yeah. all for all of the faults that we have mentioned in, in so far, <laughs> yeah. um, it does actually, I think, handle Linda's death in a, quite a tasteful way. Yeah. Um, did you find that? Yeah, I, I definitely did, I, and you know, I, I found I found it quite moving as well. Like, it, so it's it's apparently quite true to life of the last things that Paul said to her as she was sort of slipping away as he sort of said to her you know you're you're on your favorite horse it's a beautiful spring day and the bluebells are out i think the words that he speaks in the film are i'm not sure how well how it's known i'm not sure who reported what his last words to her are but I, you know i don't think it's disputed that that's what they were and that's it's really nice and and quite touching and i think also the fact that as in real life sort of went went back to arizona and the house that they're sort of doing this in in arizona the the sort of production design sort of contributes it 
to it in a way. Um, the the fact that uh, they go back to this house in Arizona that they own because I think you know she wanted to. It's not explicitly said this is where I want to die, but there's um, sort of good interplay between the two actors where she says that's where she wants to go and the implication is that's where I want to go back and die just the way that they portrayed that house and uh, you know the uh, the the sort of um, the weather and the landscape and things like that I think um, it's all just kind of nicely set up you know and you, you can imagine that if this is someone's dream landscape and you know she speaks earlier in the film about uh, that's the place where she got free not where mm. she grew up, but where she got free is how she describes it. And uh, I, I think it, it, to bring her back there, to bring the character back there so that she can die there, it's sort of important for the film to show us the sort of beauty of that place. Mm. Um, and I think it does that really effectively. I, I completely agree with everything you just said. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think it's it's actually quite difficult to, I guess, make this point when I think the film does a really good job of playing out those scenes in a very tender way between Paul and Linda. And I think that, considering this is a film that's uh, been broadcast two years after her death, mm. it, it, it is very respectful of her as a person and what she's achieved that they take the time to play those scenes out in such a sort of moving way. I could notice the bald cap <laughs> in the scene. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say that now. You you could tell that there was a bit of a flap yeah. in the bald cap right right by yeah. her, her ear. Yeah. For for the briefest moment, it took me out of the scene. <laughs> yes, I suppose it would. <laughs> yes, yeah. But uh, the the moving nature of the scene, I was brought back into it again with with Paul actually delivering the film's sort of closing note, which is quite a which is quite a lovely eulogy. Yeah. Um, that he he gives in in terms of her being a wife and a mother, and yeah. they're quite nice words to to end on. That sort of like nicely sum up, I think, what she meant to him. Yeah. It it and um, the words are really nice. Uh, the fact that he speaks in voiceover for the only time in the whole film, it in a way just sort of hijacks that framing device that is so up until this point when we've heard her narration, it's her talking to um, that woman at the gallery opening. Um, and then we hear Paul at the end uh, saying, you know, I was Linda's lover for 30 years. And it's like he's speaking to us. But if he's taking over as, as the narrator, is he now talking to the woman in the gallery about Linda who is... I mean, I, I can't who, believe you're picking up um, <laughs> such a petty point in what is otherwise a really beautiful scene. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Yeah. You're, yeah. <laughs> You wouldn't have me doing that, um, <laughs> but no, I do, I do appreciate that as well. Yeah, you, like like in some somehow like the woman who is is still there yeah. <laughs> several years after Linda first started that story. Yeah, everyone yeah. else has gone home several years ago, yeah. and she's still standing there, yeah. uh, hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paul uh, pops back in and says, uh, "I mean, now she's died. I do need to tell you this." Yeah. So, well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> So I think on the whole, there there is definitely a debate to be had there around how much we should accept the film for what it is and our expectations for uh, how much it should be delivering considering the budget it was made, the audience it was made for. I didn't even get a chance to mention the scene with Chrissy Hind where Chrissy Hind actually has to use her own name in her own sentence so that we actually know who she is. Um, 
<laughs> but or whether we should be holding it to a, a higher standard. Um, <laughs> it's probably unfair to do so. It's fun to still watch and to chat about those things. I think where, where the film objectively has a bit of a failing for me, I think, is it, it doesn't introduce enough conflict in the film. It does feel a little bit like this is basically a story of Paul and Linda falling in love, growing old together, and then she gets cancer and dies. And there's not much of a story uh, a, told between that. It's it's very much a chronological, not even told chronologically, but it's very yeah. much an account of a person's life without there being a a narrative thrust to the plot. Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that the the story aspect of the Linda McCartney story <laughs> ne- necessarily does her justice, but. I will say that I think in its attention to some period detail, particularly its uh, commitment to costume design, uh, finding specific photos that uh, of her and Paul and the other Beatles and trying to recreate them, even down so far as the way a cigarette is held in, in one case, actually sort of uh, would be quite satisfying. It was quite satisfying for a Beatles fan like me. And I think there would be bits in it that were satisfying to non-Beatles fans as well. Um, so I think it, it would have appealed okay to a broad audience. But the uh, <laughs> the brick-throwing scene is absolutely unforgivable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but do you agree? Have you seen this film? And uh, do you have any thoughts and opinions on it? Do you think we've been too harsh on the film? Do you think we're completely wrong and the film actually is a contiguous hagiography? Do let us know. You can reach us on all of the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. You can also leave us a review or a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform of choice. In the meantime, we'll be back again next week for another episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.